0: Good morning. Good morning everybody. While everyone finds their seats we just need to start out the program with a safety announcement. Going forward at convocation and other large events you'll be either seeing or hearing an announcement similar to this. So before we begin our program we need to make a quick safety announcement. Please note the exits closest to your seats. The exit closest to you now is more than likely not the same door that you came in on, so please note we have exits there, there, and there. In case of an emergency, please use the exit closest to your seats. And also, if there is an emergency need defibrillator, there is an AED in the lobby of the chapel. Thank you for coming. Now let us continue with the official introduction to today's convocation, please.
1: Good morning, everyone. My name is Victoria Bradgen, and I'm a junior English major from Gilbert, Arizona. Class of 2027, congrats and welcome to your new home. If you're like me or all the students who sat in those same seats before you, you probably still have questions about Carleton. I have the great honor of introducing today's convocation speaker, Professor Susan Jarrett mckinstry That said, Susan, the selfless person she is, wanted me to talk more about myself. Like Susan, my parents didn't graduate with a bachelor's degree. I followed in the tracks of my older brother in going to a liberal arts school. It wasn't until I got here that I really started to wonder, what does liberal arts really mean anyway? What's the point? This is the topic of today's convocation in which you'll have the opportunity to hear Susan's wit and grace. Susan is the Helen F. Lewis Professor of English and is deeply beloved by many generations of students, English and non-English majors alike. Susan received her bachelor's and master's degrees from Miami University in Ohio and her doctorate from the University of Michigan. She's a scholar of 19th century British literature and culture, especially the Bloomsbury and Pre-Raphaelites groups, but she has also published on Jane Austen, Feminist Theory, Tony Morrison, T.S. Eliot, and the Digital Humanities. She revels in writing poetry, including her book, *Tumble Home, that comes out next year. Since 1982, she has taught courses in literature, critical theory, visual studies, creative writing and journalism, and more. She directed programs abroad in England, Ireland, Scotland, Italy, and Norway, and taught as a Fulbright scholar in Moscow. It's hard to say which of her classes has been my favorite so far as they're all magical, but I recently enjoyed the interdisciplinarity of narrative theory. Susan encourages all forms of technology from websites to podcasts to film and is, in my opinion, the best dressed professor. Seriously, every shirt she wears tells a story, just ask her. (laughs) One of my favorite lessons from Susan's classes is that we should never fear speaking up, even if only to say, This isn't a fully formed thought, but here's something I'm considering, because another student can always build on that idea. Above all else, Susan is deeply committed to getting to know and mentor each student, and I truly consider it the greatest honor to have formed such a connection with her. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Carlton's very own Susan Jarrett McKinstry.
2: that generous and sort of intimidating introduction. I feel like I have a lot to live up to now and I'll do my best. Victoria also has amazing stories to tell, including what she's been doing for this summer. So I hope you ask her and get to know her a little bit. Welcome to all of you and a particular welcome to the class of 2027, an extraordinary, diverse, inventive group of people gathered from around the world to learn together over the next four years. Please raise your hand if you're a frosh. Hello, welcome. I like that hesitation, are we? I don't know, can we raise our hand? That's the first test, raise your hand. Each of you is enrolled this term in one of the 38 ANI seminars offered in 26 academic disciplines and interdisciplinary fields. Congratulations on choosing among such a buffet of options. Have you thought about the title of Carlton's single, shared, required course, Argument and Inquiry? I used to wonder why it wasn't called Inquiry and Argument. Don't we start with the questions and then explore answers to formulate an argument? But as I thought about it, I thought maybe beginning with argument highlights the process. We may start by thinking we know the answer. As we ask questions, we find the more we ask, the more we need to inquire into what assumptions formed our argument in the first place, from argument to inquiry, from answers to discovery. In case you think professors know all the answers, I always begin with questions. I came to Carleton with a shiny new PhD and no liberal arts college experience, and it has been a steep, dizzying learning curve. What did I want to know as a frosh at the beginning of my own college experience at a distant state university where everyone else seemed to come with one or maybe two majors already declared? I would have wanted to hear that I was opening doors with each decision, not closing them. I would have liked, sorry, reassurance, that it would turn out to be a good story with a compelling middle and a happy end, worth the time and the investment. We all love a good story. So how might I tell that story to you? You can see my method. I listen, I inquire, get ideas, and wonder. So I think my story today needs many voices and perspectives. I asked some Carleton alumni from many decades who work in different careers this simple question. Why do stories matter in your field? I was so moved by their answers that I will share them all with you today. I wish they could be here in person, a few of them are. They are amazing, curious, generous people. But look around you, I mean literally, look around you for a second. You are part of a community of people like that students, staff, townspeople, faculty, and visitors, all of whom you will talk with and learn from as you craft your own story. So here's the first alumni voice. Katie Dahl, 05, English, musician, playwright. I tell stories for a living. My songs are four-minute stories. When I perform them, I introduce them with short little vignettes, also stories. The musicals I write are 90-minute stories. The thousands of stories I have heard from other songwriters and playwrights over my lifetime have been among my strongest anchors and wisest teachers, and that's why I wanted to tell stories in the first place. As you puzzle over Carleton's graduation requirements, you probably notice that instead of specific disciplines, Carleton's liberal arts requirements ask you to explore broad cross-disciplinary categories such as global citizenship and quantitative reasoning, as well as six areas of curricular exploration that include social inquiry, lab practice, lab science, and arts practice. No wonder I called the ANI seminars a buffet. The liberal arts at Carleton are designed to give students a taste of different disciplinary and interdisciplinary methods and approaches to let you hear stories across divisions and discover new possibilities and outcomes. Here's your second alumni voice Matthew Zimmerman, 82, English, film. AV production manager, White Center, musician, recording engineer. Presenting concerts and events at Carlton's Crackham Performance Hall means meeting an incredible array of diverse and amazing guest artists and student performers. One thing never changes. Everything and everyone has a story. A beginning, a middle, and an end. Just not always in that order. Silent and listen have the same letters. I have found that the most important way to honor our guests and to guarantee a meaningful event is to ask to hear the story while taking the time to listen to its meaning. Without stories, life is unknowable. You can see why I love these answers. So here's my first inquiry for you. Pay attention to the course descriptions and websites, their structure, the readings and assignments, topics and questions, the class discussions. Ask yourself. What story is this course telling about the liberal arts, about education, about the discipline? Where does the story begin? What assumptions does it make? And what does it slow down to examine? Who are the main characters? What are the conflicts? And what constitutes a satisfying or successful ending? Of course, nothing can give you the whole story. Yet every course demonstrates the process of argument and inquiry that shapes knowledge into a narrative with a beginning, a middle and an end. I don't mean fictions, although as a creative writing teacher, I will be so happy if you write good fictions and please take my class. But I do mean narrative as a fundamental, transcultural, transhistorical human act. Here's the next alumni voice. Joel Dimsdale, 68, Biology, Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry Emeritus, MD. I am a doctor. Medical histories are crucial in every medical specialty. Patients come in with their narratives about their lives and symptoms. We doctors listen and try to make sense of the narrative so that it leads to a diagnosis and treatment. Psychiatrists, as a special case of physicians, are also keen about listening for themes, omissions, and distortions implicit in the patient's stories. Regardless of specialty, we refract the patient's narrative into one of our own, and that structure of physician's patient notes is remarkably consistent across the world. It's almost as if medical education is about learning how to structure that narrative as complex and predictable as a sonnet. Let's take a moment to define narrative. The word narrative derives from Sanskrit, na, to know, plus Latin, narus, knowing, and narrow, telling. So it is both act and outcome. Did you have show and tell at school? I won't make you raise your hands, but I suspect you did. Narrative is the basis, a performance of know and tell. You need to know the story you want to tell in order to show the audience. Historian Hayden White calls narrative a solution to the problem of how to translate knowing into telling. And he claims that story forms not only permit us to judge the moral significance of human projects, they also provide the means by which to judge them, even while we pretend to be merely describing them. Consider that quote for a moment. Literary critics really love doing that. They look at something, then they look back at it, then they talk about it some more and get some more details. How to translate knowing into telling. That's the challenge of most exams, right? Solving a math problem, creating a data visualization, listing the eight stages of psychosocial development, or the four elements of democracy, can all result in a correct answer. Yet White's use of the term translate reminds us that knowing and telling are different, and that it takes work to connect them. The act of writing highlights that process. Each a seminar in any discipline is a writing-rich course designed to teach you how to translate what you are learning into telling it effectively for that discipline and ideally as an example of good college writing. I really love that quote. As White points out, narrative forms that seem descriptive and objective, think lab reports, graphs, even history descriptions, are shaped by and shape human judgments. Here's your next alumni voice. Samantha Chow, 16, English Chemistry. Chief Resident, Emergency Medicine, MD, HEC. Stories are possibly the only things that matter in medicine. Being a physician is a calling to care for other people. How can we care for others if we don't listen to their stories? We are constantly sorting through vast amounts of new data and information about our patients and squaring it with the countless pieces of medical knowledge that we accrue through our training. But none of these things matter if we can't place them in the context of the patient's story. And Sam goes on, and I can't forget the providers themselves. Stories are everything, stories of people's success and people's failures. We need opportunities to lay out the narrative of a patient's care in order to reflect on what could have been done differently. Stories can be inspiring, funny, or heart-wrenchingly sad, but sharing them is such an important way of connecting with one another about the insane and devastating things that can happen in our workplace. Comparative literature professor Barbara Hernstein Smith defines narrative simply as someone telling someone else that something happened. Think about that deceptively simple definition. Who is telling, telling whom, and what exactly happened? The imprecise terms of her definition highlight the fact that stories are told within specific cultural and historical contexts for particular reasons and precise listeners, sometimes under stress or in emergencies. What matters is the shared act where, as Hernstein Smith writes in one of my favorite quotes, participation in the narrative transaction is sufficiently in the interest of each party to win out over all currently competing activities for both of them. Let's think about that. Why do stories win out? Why do we listen to narratives or read them or tell them? Literary critic J. Hillis Miller, in an essay helpfully titled, Narrative, asks, Exactly what psychological or social functions do stories serve? Just why do we need stories? Why do we need the same stories over and over? Why is our need for more stories never satisfied? When you go to a bookstore or watch a show on Netflix, you get recommendations often labeled, if you liked that story, you'll like this one. We hunger for remakes and sequels and prequels of the same story seven Mission Impossible stories so far, five Indiana Jones movies, but why? Hillis Miller's essay concludes, in fictions we order and reorder the givens of experience. We give experience a form and a meaning, a linear order with a shapely beginning, middle, end, and a central theme. With fictions we investigate, perhaps invent the meaning of human life. That's a lot. Psychologist and psychoanalyst Roy Schaefer agrees, claiming that we are forever telling stories about ourselves. The self is a telling. Other people are constructed in telling about them. We narrate others just as we narrate selves. Personal development may be characterized as change in the questions it is urgent or essential to answer. In other words, like writers creating characters, we tell stories and other people's stories to try on possible selves. So here's my second inquiry for all of you. As you listen to people's stories, ask yourself, what self is this person constructing with this story? What are their urgent questions? How does my role as listener change the story they're telling? How do I retell others' stories and revise my own? Here's your next alumni voice, Amy Bevilacqua, 89. English, Film Studies, Managing Partner, Green Street, Impact Partners. Stories and the way you feel when someone tells one to you are pretty much the only thing you remember. I lead a network of female investors in education, and as I try to create a culture of being vulnerable with each other and actively extending ourselves to help each other, I'm aware that when I introduce myself and tell my personal story, it's a fragile opportunity to leave someone feeling connected and curious. So think about your college admissions essay, a job application, or your first conversation with new friends. With each narrative, we continuously revise ourselves as we translate experience into knowledge. Jay Hillis Miller writes that narrative may affirm, reinforce, even create the most basic assumptions of a culture about human existence, about time, destiny, selfhood, where we come from, what we ought to do while we are here, where we go, the whole course of human life. That's a bold statement. And maybe you notice that he provides three options. Narrative may affirm, reinforce, even create basic cultural assumptions. Hillis Miller is thinking through writing, showing the process of his inquiries, and he ends with a really strong argument. Narratives reinforce the dominant culture and put it into question, both at the same time. In other words, he says, we need stories, the same stories, and more stories, because narratives reinforce cultural givens and at the same time give us the chance to test out new possibilities. That is powerful. Narratives show the cultural rules and present alternative perspectives so effectively that some people are working very hard to ban books right now in America. Here's your next voice. Chris Martin, 2000, English. Poet, writer, curator of multiverse series publishing neurodivergent poets at Milkweed Editions. Stories matter in my field and life because they help me steward the work of non-speaking autistic writers to a world that is generally unprepared to meet them. Stories help me elucidate the threads of connection that already exist between these writers and their potential readers, but have been rendered invisible by an ableist society. Stories help us more fully and joyfully occupy the braid where our differences overlap, bringing us into solidarities we were never meant to find. You already know I'm an English professor, so it won't surprise you that I always see connections to literature. I think Charlotte Bronte's 1847 novel, Jane Eyre, is a great example of narrative's cunning ability to reinforce and question cultural rules. I'll try not to spoil the plot. Jane Eyre is a first person story told by an orphaned girl abused by her cruel aunt and three awful cousins. Doesn't that sound familiar already? And banished to a terrible boarding school. Yet she perseveres and grows up to become the governess at an isolated estate with a mysterious absent owner where her heart and integrity are challenged. That should also sound familiar. Many 19th century reviewers declared the novel was naughty immoral, and dangerous. They condemned the author for telling a story in which a mere governess, self-described as poor, obscure, plain, and little, gets a happy ending. They determined that the author's personality was reflected in the novel, and that personality was irredeemably coarse, vulgar, and alien. It would be no credit to anyone to be the author of Jane Eyre, one reviewer concluded. Ouch. And those are all direct quotes from the reviews. However, some critics praised the novel's bold story, and by the 20th century, readers and critics celebrated Jane's insistent self-creation and her questioning of her culture's values and gender roles. The novel Jane Eyre, in other words, reinforces 19th century culture and resists it. It provides clear evidence of extreme class and gender oppression and simultaneously tells an alternative story of a female narrator who asks questions, asserts herself, and revises those cultural givens. Reader, I married him, she says at the end. And Jane's story speaks across time and place. It has been retold in more than 100 adaptations so far in diverse forms, cultural contexts, and languages, as you can see. The moments that provide alternatives in every story are called forking path narratives. I love that phrase. Those what-if moments that invite curiosity and decision-making. Forking path narratives can produce cliffhangers that pause at just the right moment. And they are key to role-playing games where the player must decide what happens next. Environmental science and technology professor Nicole Klink writes, stories serve as virtual reality laboratories enabling us to test ideas and paths of actions to address a problem. Here's your next alumni voice. Jill Poskanzer, 15, English. Narrative production manager at Supermassive Games in England. Games have a unique narrative feature in that they are interactive, so the players can literally put themselves in the perspective of the characters they are controlling. By giving the players the opportunity to make choices in character and change the narrative, people truly experience different perspectives in a way that reading or watching something does not. There are two major risks involved with pork path narratives. One, says reader response critic. Wolfgang Easer, is that the text may either not go far enough or may go too far, so boredom and overstrain form the boundaries at which the reader will leave the field of play. In other words, game over. The other risk, expectation and surprise, reminds us that stories must follow expected formal rules, what we expect, and also surprise audience. That's a key appeal in comedy, right, and in many fields. Psychology professor B. Ricci explains, to say that our expectations are satisfied is to be guilty of serious ambiguity. Such a statement seems to deny the obvious fact that much of our enjoyment is derived from surprises, from betrayals of our expectations. The solution to this paradox is a distinction between surprise and frustration. Frustration blocks or checks activity, but surprise causes intense contemplation and scrutiny. Perhaps that distinction describes your experiences sometimes in classrooms or discussions, moving between boredom and overstrain, between expectation and surprise, ideally leaving you creatively engaged, thinking and acting. Here's your next alumni voice. Cindy Nichols, 5 English, Director, Center for Community and Civic Engagement at Carleton. One of the key tools I rely on in my work is public narrative, a framework developed by a lifelong civil rights activist, community, and labor union organizer turned Harvard professor, Marshall Gantz. It has become a resource for change-making around the world. Narrative, writes Gantz, is the process through which individuals, communities, and nations make choices, construct identity, and inspire action. It can both instruct and inspire, teaching us not only how we ought to act, but motivating us to act. No wonder narratives are so powerful. Starting at a beginning, working through the forking paths of a middle and reaching the end, stories combine expectation and surprise to test cause and effect, decision-making and possible outcomes. The narrative term retrospective recognition highlights the essential act of looking back after the end of a linear story to recognize patterns and only then think we can determine their full significance. Film director Christopher Nolan spoke about the main character in his film Oppenheimer in a recent interview. Oppenheimer's story is central to the way in which we live now and the way we are going to live forever. He gave the world the power to destroy itself. No one has done that before. So there are two ways of looking at this contribution, and we don't know which one is right. A lot of what Oppenheimer has has said about arms control and the way in which events would unfold has proven to be absolutely true. A lot of it has also seemed hopelessly naive. This is a story that doesn't have an ending yet. So in this talk, I've included voices from many fields and disciplines to emphasize that stories often don't provide endings but evolve with new discoveries, with urgent or essential questions demanding answers. During the awful summer of 2020, when the murder of George Floyd and the pandemic's rising toll altered our urgent questions, a group of young 19th century scholars in my field founded an ongoing collaborative movement called Undisciplining the Discipline. Their word, undisciplining, I think is brilliant at pointing out how knowledge can become rigid and that disciplinary stories need to be revised, deconstructed, if you will, by questioning their assumptions, their main characters, and their omissions. Undisciplining the discipline reminds us to ask what voices or versions may have been silenced or obscured by a familiar story, by those assumptions, and to listen to those essential perspectives. I hope some of you are singing Hamilton to yourselves, who lives, who dies, who tells the story. Here's another alumni voice. Hiba Kamal Grayson, 08, English. Public policy lead, Google, technology policy. I advise product teams on policy risks and opportunities around the design and launch of new products. The stories we hear from our users and the stories we use to understand the world's needs, these are absolutely critical for us. These stories help us identify and answer key questions, such as what values are embedded in the emerging technologies we all use every single day? How can we ensure that these technologies are deployed responsibly and serve as many people as possible? What great questions, right? So here's my final inquiry for you. As you read anything, follow the news, listen to political speeches, hear songs, see art exhibitions, plays, or movies, You might ask yourself, what question is this narrative trying to answer? Why might audiences at a particular time or place find this narrative compelling? What cultural or social values does the narrative seem to reinforce? Do my values or beliefs differ? What other perspectives might enhance or change the story? All stories, personal, national, and global are told in specific historical and cultural contexts, and those stories in turn shape individuals, their perspectives, and the world. Literary theorist Stanley Fish uses the term interpretive community to define a group formed by shared assumptions and strategies. Each course you take creates an interpretive community. You learn the particular terms and methods of the subject, you develop a specialized understanding of the way to work, You get more in-class discussions, and then you tell what you know in lab reports, math proofs, art critiques, essays, and other narrative structures that reinforce that interpretive community's values and knowledge. Cultural anthropologist Victor Turner makes the same point with his wonderful term, star group. I really like that term. The social group to which an individual owes allegiance. Turner explains that we all belong to multiple, sometimes competing star groups, and some tragic situations arrive from conflicts of loyalty to different star groups. Think Romeo and Juliet, perhaps, or work-life balance, or American politics. The terms interpretive community and star group prove that shared stories shape our individual and cultural perspectives, and the benefits are evident. In class, you can learn to argue like a philosopher and observe like a geologist. But powerful interpretive communities might also produce master plots that enforce existing structures in order to inhibit or silence other narrative options. The stakes are high. Think about the echo chambers of of misinformation and their real-world results. Narratologist H. Porter Abbott sees national culture as a complex weave of numerous, often conflicting, master plots, and his solution is more stories because the representation of conflict in narrative provides a way for a culture to talk to itself about and possibly resolve conflicts that threaten to fracture it or at least make living difficult. Notice that he has a culture talk to itself, just as we all do. Narrative with its forking paths and diverse perspectives helps a culture articulate its conflicts, question assumptions, test out possible decisions, and perhaps revise the endings. Here's another alumni voice, Ellen Byron, 98, English, Deputy Coverage Chief of Business News for the Wall Street Journal. Every day in journalism, we chase the untold story. When that story becomes well-known, we look for new narratives, fresh voices, overlooked or unheard, unknown characters, and aim to represent those elements as thoroughly, fairly, and neutrally as possible. So let's go back to our original three questions. Why do we need stories? Because they, stru- they, random- they, I'm sorry, they structure random events into meaning. Why do we need the same story over and over? Because the repeated story reinforces cultural assumptions and at the same time challenges them. Why do we need more stories? Because our urgent questions change and stories help us structure new meanings. I'll give two final examples of urgent contemporary questions that spark diverse narratives. One is the elephant in the room, AI. Maybe you wondered if I would dare to bring it up as an English professor. Developers see important applications such as robotics and medical diagnoses, but some AI developers themselves warn that AI may end civilization as we know it, and I'm quoting them. When Google barred AI's uh, Google's AI system gave a wrong answer to a simple question about the James Webb telescope. Uh, astrophysicist Grant Tremblay responded A major problem for AI chat box, like ChatGPT and BARD is their tendency to confidently state incorrect information as fact. AI systems frequently hallucinate, that is, make up information, because they are essentially autocomplete systems. I want you to think about how your phone does with autocomplete and just kind of have that in your mind. Technology writer Tiffany Hu covers AI hallucinations such as fake biographical details and mashed-up identities, which some researchers call Franken-people. I love that computer scientists personify AI with the word hallucinate. That is scary. And I want to point out that AI skips the process of inquiry and argument that I've been highlighting as an essential component of knowledge AI will be a useful tool, but the story it tells might be wrong. That's alarming enough, but more critically, it is not your story. It doesn't encompass your arguments and inquiries, your experiences and discoveries. Don't you want to tell your own story and have agency over your own narrative? Here's the final alumni voice, Joe Andrews, 87, English. VP of Global Brand Strategies, Thomson Reuters, retired. Twin Cities actor, singer, director. If you're responsible for people's perceptions of your company's brand, you need clear, compelling, and authentic stories. A clear brand story serves as a litmus test. If you aren't clear about your story, other people, customers, media, and most perilously the competition, will own the narrative. Letting someone else own your narrative is problematic at best and ruinous at worst. Recent heartbreaking global disasters are evidence that climate change poses urgent questions and we need answers. Elizabeth Colbert's New Yorker article, Climate Change from A to Z, presents 26 alphabetized perspectives on the topic and her entry for N is narrative. Her claims should sound familiar to you at this point. Narratives are socially constructed stories that make sense of events, thereby lending direction to human action. So observes a paper published recently in the journal Climate Change by a team of European researchers. Climate change narratives, the team notes, typically foreground doom and gloom. Often they emphasize risk. If they aren't retailing the latest warning-related disasters, fires, floods, food shortages, they're predicting a future filled with even grimmer warming-related disasters, bigger fires, more severe flooding, famines that threaten entire regions. Remember the narrative phrase, boredom and overstrain, and the risky result, in action? Here's Colbert's final paragraph. What's needed instead, the paper goes on, are narratives that empower people to act. Such narratives tell a positive and engaging story. They articulate a vision of where we want to go and outline steps that could be taken to arrive at this metaphorical destination. Positive stories can also become self-fulfilling. People who believe in a brighter future are more likely to put in the effort required to achieve it. When they put in that effort, they make discoveries that hasten progress. Along the way, they build communities that make positive change possible. In response to Colbert, essayist Rebecca Solnit writes, every crisis is in part a storytelling crisis. Perhaps we also need to become better critics and listeners, more careful about what we take in and who's telling it, and what we believe and repeat, because stories can give power or they can take it away. What the climate crisis is, what we can do about it, and what kind of a world we can have is all about the stories we tell and whose stories are told. So the real question for any good story is, what happens next? speculative fiction is a good place to look for answers. In her essay, A Few Rules for Predicting the Future, novelist Octavia Butler, whom you must read if you have not, recounts her conversation with a student who asks her that question. So you really believe that in the future we're going to have the kind of trouble you write about in your books? Butler tells him, I didn't make up the problems, All I did was look around at the problems we're neglecting now and give them about 30 years to grow into full-fledged disasters. Okay, the young man challenged, so what's the answer? There isn't one, I told him. There's no magic bullet. Instead, there are thousands of answers at least. You can be one of them if you choose to be. So the liberal arts might not give you thousands of answers, but they will give you many perspectives, and that's the point. Telling the whole story as I hope my talk has demonstrated requires many collaborative voices. With your choice of this small residential campus and its vital liberal arts curriculum, through your classes, your work, your off-campus programs and extracurricular interests, you will encounter an inspiring variety of disciplinary, cultural and personal stories. Listen to the stories around you, from around the world and throughout history. Keep inquiring. Share your story, forking path narratives with unexpected classes and opportunities, and keep revising. Please come and tell me your story in my office or over coffee or on a walk. I'm always walking my white dog around town. You'll see me. I love to listen, and I love to learn people's stories. Thank you for listening, and now I hope you have some questions. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Susan, very much for that presentation. Thank you all for being here. As Susan mentioned, we're going to have some Q&A time in a second, but I just have a little housekeeping to take care of first. If this is your first convocation, welcome. Please don't let it be your last convocation. How can you get involved? Go to the convocation web page, and you'll see where you can suggest speakers where you can sign up for luncheon we're going to talk about that in a little bit more also there's a nice trip ce link to questions for the upcoming speakers that you can use for this or for the luncheon which we're going to talk about in a second um, but there are some things down the page that aren't there that you can be involved like victoria you can be a student introducer i think i just popped my p as a matter of fact we're talking about that so please talk to me. My contact is on the page. If you see a speaker and you're like, I would love to introduce that speaker, please contact me. We always need student introducers. Also, crowd managers. I forgot my lanyard. It's over there someplace, but we're for crowds this size. We need crowd managers to help in the case of an emergency. Please talk to me about training for that. Uh, apart from that, it's the luncheon. So after this, we're going to have a luncheon. It's a RSVP, but we have lots of openings. If you'd like to come. I shouldn't say lots. We have a few openings. Please talk to me afterwards. We will have some deliciously flavored chicken as well as quinoa loaf garden salad, uh, Minnesota wild rice pilaf, dinner rolls, key lime bars, yum yum, as well as beverages. So please talk to me about this if you would like to join us today. Otherwise, go to the page, find a speaker, find all the speakers, RSVP for the luncheon. I think it's now time for Q&A with Susan. Who would like to start us off? question or comment, I will bring you the mic. The first question is always the hardest. And after that, it opens up and everybody has a question. Okay, here we go. Hi, Susan. Thanks so much for uh, your talk. Can you say why you selected that J.M.W. Turner painting as your first intro for <laughs>
2: Thank you, David. Um, I selected a painting by Turner that is evocative without telling any clear story. It's it's called Snowstorm. Uh, What is it? Can can we go back to it? Yes, I can. Close your eyes for a sec. I'll make you dizzy. There we go. J.M.W. Turner, Snowstorm, Steamboat, Off a Harbor's Mouth, 1842. I'm particularly, you know, absorbed with 1842 because the group I study started in 1847. I just love that period. Jane Eyre was from 1847. But I also wanted something that seemed to be telling some sort of story, but you cannot tell what story it is by looking at it. Uh, It doesn't show really well here, but it's an utterly spectacular painting. And the story is that... Turner had himself lashed to the mast of a boat in a storm so that he could see what it actually looked like to be in the middle of that intensity so that he could paint it. So um, David, there are so many reasons I picked that picture, but I, I really love it. Did you find it sort of strange and wonder what in the world it had to do with what I was going to talk about? I hope so.
0: All right, Who, oh, here we have a couple.
1: Um, why did you or how did you choose your alumni voices, like the people that you asked?
2: That's also a great question. Um, there are so many to choose from that it was really hard. I, um, as you can see from what people are doing, they are really busy. They're living very busy, complicated lives. So I tried to pick people I knew well enough to not feel completely embarrassed, to ask them for a little bit of time. Um, and I also wanted people with a great range of professions that they were in now. So notice that there's nobody who's an English professor, even though I know many people who've gone on in fields that were more, more apparent or likely. Um, and with all of them, I wrote a very apologetic note saying, you know, give me a sound bite or just, you know, like a couple. And they, they spent so much time and thought on it. Um, one of them, the emergency room resident, wrote this beautiful two-page I mean, you all want her to be your doctor, right? This two-page sort of description of what that means to be at that unimaginable for me moment of stress, trying to make sure you hear somebody's story correctly and write it down in the correct terminology. So, uh, frankly, I picked people that I wasn't completely, you know, I knew they would say no if they couldn't, but I also knew them well enough that they were doing really interesting work, and then I was just stunningly moved by their answers. and. If you're in the ANI seminars, your professors actually have those answers and can share them with you. Um, if anyone else is curious, I'm glad to share them with you. Um, they were moving and a couple of them are working here on campus, Matthew and Cinda. You could ask them you know, to talk more about it. Poor Matthew, I ran into him in the White Center and said to him one day, I'm working on a talk on narrative and he immediately said this amazing thing. I said, you've got to write that down and give it to me. So um, yeah, that was actually, the easy part, and if you can't come up with another question, say to somebody, "Why do stories matter in your life?" and see what happens. It's a great conversation starter. Hello. So I have a, So I'm currently in literary revision, and I. So this is kind of a, when you were talking about retelling narratives. Um, this is my question on that. What is the continued, ne- ne- sorry, continued necessity of retelling and rephrasing stories? How does this continue to further our contemporary culture today? Wonderful question. And um, I mean, I hope in some ways I answered a little bit of it, which is to say, when we even say something like the same story, like literary revision, what is the same story? What are the elements that make every Jane Eyre the same Jane Eyre? We're making a decision about that. So I think revision is... um, Sometimes an act of the writer wanting to go back and and think about another part, like The White Sargasso Sea, which is written from the perspective of the mad woman in the attic, Bertha Rochester, rather than Jane. Or, um, you know, the writer is kind of exploring some part of the story that they didn't hear told enough. And I also think we, as a contemporary audience, want to hear it again because we have different questions. We have different urgent questions. Jane Eyre going from being immoral, you know, and shameful and embarrassing to being kind of a role model for people. Because of that novel, there were governesses, benevolent institutions formed partly by Charles Dickens that helped care for governesses who could no longer work because Jane suffers for a while. I won't tell you anymore. I think I'm giving way too much of the plot. Um, so being in a class like that, you're so lucky because you're actually watching you know, those two texts that are quite different, but also trying to think what pulls them together and what are the differences? What's the moment that the writer of the second one felt that they needed to go back and retell that story for some reason? I love that. I want to be in your class.
1: Hi. Um, Hi. I was just wondering, you've talked a lot about how you love finding other people's stories and finding their path to, loving narratives and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your story and how you fell in love with narrative.
2: Somebody who read this early on said to me, you never say anything about yourself. In fact, the first version was like just all quotes from other people and he said, oh no, Susan, you have to say something yourself. Um, I I love that question and, um, boy, uh, there's so many ways I can give that answer but um, I only understood how interested I was in narrative, uh, really, at the moment when the Challenger shuttle exploded in 1986 on television. It was a moment where a, a shuttle went up with a young school teacher on board. So it was seen as this incredible teaching moment for people around America. And many schools brought television sets into the school so children could watch this on TV. And shortly after takeoff, it just blew up, and I was a young mother, I had a baby, and I was a young teacher at Carleton, I think not even uh, on tenure track yet, certainly not tenured, and I remember th- watching the newscasters trying to figure out what to say, because they knew that there were all these children in the audience, and they you could see them constructing a story. Same thing happened with 9-11, which many of you probably are, remember same thing happened January 6th where there was this moment that was widely visible and you could see the story get constructed and then of course over time it continues that I'm of notice how I'm not exactly talking about myself I'm immediately shifting it but that led to two classes the first one was a class in narrative where I began to think about how narratives worked. and two of the people who spoke in the alumni voices were actually in that first very exploratory class Then I created a memoir class for a period of time, an arts practice class on memoir, where I had students writing memoirs, and now I teach a journalism class called News Stories, so it's like full circle. I'm back to thinking, when an event happens, how does it get turned into a narrative? Um, The other side I'll give, maybe a little more self revelatory is um, I feel like I have been so lucky to teach at a liberal arts college, because if I get really curious about something, the provost or dean is often willing to let me try it out, and my department is willing to let me try it out. And there are places like ANI seminars where faculty can explore ideas that are sort of, you know, in process, the way Victoria said at the beginning. You know, like I'm just I have a half-formed thought. I want to see what happens. So I feel like um, my professional life on both of those sides has kept reinforcing narratives. And I come from an Irish family of storytellers, so you know, I was born to this. Storytelling and everybody else in the family was better at it than I am, so I got to be a really good listener. So, (laughs) it's like a little relay. This is how we gave Noel most of his exercise, so you have to like keep all around the room raising your hands just so he can keep running around.
0: Thanks so much, Susan. You've really spoken eloquently about the power of story, the positive role they have. I was wondering, are there any bad stories?
1: Yes.
2: <laughs> um,
1: you know what I mean though.
2: Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. Um, I think a lot of master plots can become bad stories. Um, I think a story becomes bad when it, Constrains possibilities. So, you know, my theoretical answer is no. There's no such thing as a bad story because a story always contains a reinforcement of the main culture and a resistance to it. But there are stories that become so powerful that they increasingly silence other possibilities. And um, bad story, those should not be, <laughs> not be told. Um, I was in a faculty discussion group yesterday and we were talking about oppositional readings and I, I couldn't sleep last night because I was nervous about this. I shouldn't confess that now. But I was thinking about that. And I, I believe that every story, even what look like really powerful stories, always have embedded in them actually oppositional readings, like other voices that you become increasingly aware of and um, back to the revision, revision, revisionary writing class. Uh, part of what happens is we look back at something and think wow that story neglected this part or you know that story seems so monologic we don't we don't want that how else can we see it so they can be yes they can be extraordinarily dangerous you know the witch trials in Salem yep bad stories but uh, they were actually trying to explain something about female power that they couldn't understand leading to a really great novel called The Power so just you know if you're curious go for it Interesting question.
1: Adding on to the previous question, you make the point that more stories are always better, but are there times when stories can crowd each other out and actually create confusion or Mm -hmm. other issues?
2: Terrific question. Um, There were a series of articles this summer one of whom I had quoted and I finally took it out, but it's about the danger of stories and sort of too many stories. And even the uh, Colbert's, you know, climate change from A to Z says, you know, too many stories about doom and gloom crowd out the possibilities because we just begin to think, why should I even bother recycling this piece of paper? You know, we're doomed. So yes, and I think, You you know, the younger among you, everybody practically in the room is younger than me, so I don't mean very much by that, but the younger among you have grown up in a world with such a barrage of stories coming at you all the time. Um, I hope that sorting through that is part of beginning to think who is telling this story? Why are they telling it? Why are they telling it now? One way I phrase that is what is their urgent questions but another way to think of it, this is sort of back to Bill's question. A bad story is one that's trying to force people into a very particular kind of action, perhaps. So does that make any sense? You know, m- maybe thinking about when stories are crowding other stories out, like what what's what are they trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish? I, I think the I mean, there are many things I love about the liberal arts. You can tell I became a complete convert within not too long after being on Carleton's campus. I thought, this is really fun. But um, one of the things I like is we really believe we're sending you out not with, you know, a checklist of the six skills you need to survive in the world, but question. I mean, at least I think we're teaching you to ask a lot of questions. So, you know, who's telling that story? What do they have to gain by telling it and the way they're telling it? We're entering a very long, you know, the American endless political stage and it's a good time to ask yourself who's telling stories for what reason and what stories are being crowded out and how do I find those stories? You're asking terrific questions. I want to meet you all personally, okay. (laughs) Susan, thank you so much for this wonderful talk. It's really a beautiful encompassing of what a liberal arts education can be. Um, I want to force you back to talking about yourself. Um, you're so modest and you evade that very well. But um, I'm, uh, I don't know if your students know, you. they probably do, that you have three children. And I'm wondering how being a mother um, affects your views on how a person can shape the narrative arc of others and whether this is an effort that is, um, uh, is worth making. Wow. Ooh. Um, Yes. Well, shape, I mean, it's, it's an effort worth making because I think that this is very funny to be saying some of you who are frosh I think oh my gosh this is funny to say this in front of you but I think um, we do have three children that we completely adore they're very different from one another they all live quite far away but they love coming back here so I think it's not our fault and they are doing really interesting things in the world and they all really love one another and it seems to me that I wanted to shape them in terms of being curious, open people intellectually and emotionally, but we didn't have expectations that they should be a particular thing or do a particular thing. So the word shape, you can see I'm sort of wrangling that. I came from um, a family that really believed in education but um, sort of didn't think much about me going to school. I have two older brothers. They were both supposed to go to college. One of them was supposed to become a doctor. And I was like, you know, I seem to like school. I could keep going. But when I went to graduate school, my mother actually said to me, has no one asked you to marry them yet? And I thought, okay. So, you know, she just assumed, given her cultural world, that I would become a wife and mother, that that seemed like the thing I would do, and you know, lucky me, I did. And I also became a college professor, and I think the world has made that much easier. You see, Maryliss, I'm shifting away from your question again. But, um, so I, I think everything, I go right back to Victoria's introduction. I'm so interested in hearing other people's stories that I didn't feel like my job was to shape my children's stories into something particular. But I do think we are Hyper aware of watching how other people live their lives. And as a parent, I became startled at how much my children were watching me, not at the times I thought I was giving them a lesson, but at exactly the other moments when I thought I was just quietly like doing whatever or, you know, having a snippy fit about something. And they were completely aware of that. So um, I think having my children sort of made me more honest. Um, in a way, more hmm, self-attentive in a good way, which is saying, are you being the person you wanna be right now because children are completely about the present? Um, and in a way, wow, these, are, these questions are scarily good. Um, but in a way, teaching is like that. I think every teacher in the room would probably agree. When you're in the classroom, it's so, you're so in that moment and you're so aware of what you're trying to convey in terms of the knowledge you have and the field that you love, but you also wanna bring the students' voices into it and have them be active participants in that. Am I making any sense at all? I feel like that, you know maybe ch- children and teaching made me more present, made me, le- wow, this is a great question, made me think more about not always planning for the future or looking regretfully back at the past, but just like being right there, which I'm not naturally very good at, so
0: think we have time to squeeze in one more question, if that's okay, and I believe you get it. Oh, there. So I want to ask you a final question. When you told us that you often shape the stories, how do you avoid any biases by telling the story from your perspective? Thank you.
2: It's scary to have the last question, isn't it? Um, you you. <laughs> Oh, so I somehow cross my arms for a second, like I'm thinking for a second. But I mean, my really honest answer is, we we don't escape our biases, but we can investigate our biases. So you know, I I, I miss things all the time. I make mistakes. I misspeak. But if I'm asking myself what story I'm trying to tell, but even more particularly. Um, if I really try to listen to what other people are saying and pay attention to what they're saying, that that helps kind of self-correct. I'd love to think we can not sh- have biases, but we, we do. We're shaped by all sorts of things, but do we have to be ruled by them? No. Can we change them? Absolutely. So I love that question. I mean, I think revising your story is a really good way to think about it. So. Um, I hope I'm not the person I was 20 years ago in bad way. I hope I'm not a bad story now. I hope that I'm, you know, addressing the things that should be thought about, and I hope that my friends are saying things that make me think, like hmm, oppositional reading or something. Well, what does that actually mean? Students often ask a question in a class or say something, and I think sometimes they can tell on the spot because usually I'm pacing around and you know dancing around. But I. I'll just find myself thinking about something they've said, and so it, you know, helps me re recalibrate. Does that kind of answer your question?
0: Okay. Oh, very good. Thank you very thank you very much, Susan. Thank you. First of all, thank you. and thank you all for being here today. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't let this be your last. We'll see you at Convo.